You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Today's guest on the podcast is Brigadier General Mir Finkel. General Finkel was an armored brigade commander in the Second Lebanon War and currently serves as the head of research and former director of the Dado Center for Interdisciplinary Military Studies in the IDF J3. He is the author of three books published in English, with many more in Hebrew, including Studies in Generalship, Lessons from the Chiefs of Staff of the Israel Defense Force, and Military Agility, Ensuring Rapid and Effective Transition from Peace to War. He holds an MA in Neurobiology and PhDs in Evolutionary Biology, Political Science, and Prehistoric Archaeology. Sir, welcome to the show. Thank you, John, and uh, th- thank you for inviting me for your uh, podcast series. Sir, it's a great honor, and most of the listeners will know I, I was there in August, and I had the honor of sitting with you at the, the Dado Center and getting an amazing brief. Sir, if you don't mind, I know I gave you a, a brief introduction of your <laughs> very unique and amazing background, but I thought we'd start with, like I do other guests, could you give us a a brief summary of, of your time in the IDF, your your background, experiences, and current work? Uh, yes, I, I joined uh, the, the army as, as, as a soldier, you know, uh, a conscript in uh, 1987. Began as a tank gunner, tank commander. Uh, I, I will jump between uh, periods. I served as a company commander in the security zone in Lebanon. I was later in various uh, chief uh, positions. I was a battalion commander in uh, Gaza Street. Uh, I commanded the armor officers' course. Then I was a battalion commander during Operation uh, Defensive Shield, 2002. I operated my, my battalion on tanks in Judea and Samaria in, in a few, few places. Then I was an uh, armor uh, reserve brigade of the Galilee Division uh, during the Second Lebanon War. So altogether, uh, talking about the urban warfare, I operated tanks and was personally in tanks in Gaza, in Judea, in Samaria, and in Lebanon in two different occasions. Later on, I spent uh, seven years as the head of the uh, Doctrine and Concept Department of the uh, IDF Ground Forces, revised all the... Uh, our doctrine after the Second Lebanon War, and then five years as the head of Dado Center, which is the IDF strategic level think tank in uh, belong to the GHQ to the IDF J3, and, and in the last three years, I'm the head of research in Dado Center, and I'm writing a series of books. The first one you mentioned, the, the IDF Chief of Staff. Second and third one were published in Hebrew. The second was uh, is dealing with the IJF GHQ. Third one published uh, two weeks ago, uh, Israeli Air Force Headquarters. The fourth one is nearly completed dealing with the uh, IDF Regional Command, the Northern Command, uh, dealing with Le- uh, Lebanon, Syria, Central and North and Southern Command, and the Ground Forces Headquarters that build the forces. And the fifth one and the last will be the, on the IDF uh, Intelligence Branch, Amman. So that's what I'm doing now beside the uh, besides prehistory and other things. Sure, that's pretty amazing. That's very impressive, sir. I thought, sir, I know you mentioned reserve forces in there, but for some of our listeners who might not know, I was wondering if you can give us a brief overview of the structure of the Israel Defense Forces. I know there is a 
regular army reserves, there's mandatory service. I know there's different uh, regionally aligned brigades and there's like us, there's an armor brigade and a para. Could you give us a brief overview of what the IDF is today? Yes, I will try to be to make it short. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Mandatory service, as you mentioned, now it's uh, two years and eight uh, a month for for males. My son now is in a, is a, is a foot soldier in a, the Golani Brigade, and uh, it's two years for females. You join the army at the age of 18, you serve in your regular service for those periods of years, and then you serve until the age of 40 in a reserve unit. And most of the, the, the IDF is based on, on reserves, about you know, more than half of the units and of the manpower. In the land, uh, there is a separation between a regional brigade and regional division, and what you can make call regular brigades and divisions, the heavy one and paratrooper uh, brigades and divisions that can be allocated by the GHQ to each of the regional commands and, and divisions. The IDF is based on, um, on officers. We don't have almost combat NCOs, not in the air. All the pilots are officers in the IDF. There are no uh, career NCOs in the IDF. And this is, um, I don't know why the IDF chose this way, but practically if I, I sum it up, the, the riddle of uh, the, the, the security riddle or, uh, uh, related to how to uh, create and then maintain a large force relative to the country size and limited budget is mandatory service when, uh, during which the, the soldiers uh, got paid very little and then a long uh, reserve service, and that creates the ability to have such large force uh, compared to our size. It's the cheapest way to arrange your uh, nation's abilities in, in the circumstances that we live in. What else? In the Air Force, there are, again, many reservists within the Air Squadron, and they fly once a week in order to maintain the uh, competency. In the land forces, it's a little bit different. Uh, you are practicing less, but still you are uh, supposed to transit from, make a fast transition from peace to war. This is the, another, another book that you mentioned. Within kind of few hours, 24, 36 hours, you're supposed to come from Tel Aviv and uh, be on your tank on the border. This is a personal experience. It, it works in the Second Lebanon War. Am I... My reserve brigade was 36 hours from call to the Israeli-Lebanese border. Is it enough? Sure, I think that's enough. And it kind of gives, as I, even in my recent studies last summer, just understanding the the model of the IDF is important, especially when you want to transition into, let's talk about an operation, a major operation in urban terrain. I think listeners have to understand that there is a standing army, there is a a very large portion of that standing army that may be mandatory service, but then there's even a larger reserve force that isn't like what we would think of reserves. Um, these are whole units that can rapidly within 48 hours form, fall in on equipment. And some of those, and correct me if I'm wrong, some of those reserve officers have been 20 years in that specific job or unit and is progressing. So the, the amount of expertise that can rapidly it's a different model, I think, than some people might think about 
when they think, okay, it's it's a it's a reserve, it's a mandatory service system, and they have some reserves. I think that there's there's some nuances that people have to understand. Yes, the, the reservists are not only serve in reserve units. There, there are many reservists in every headquarters from the battalion level and up. And this is another unique aspect in which the more experienced and uh, officers, sometimes within the battalion level or brigade level, you've got you know the forty or 38 years old brigade commander, let's say the, the brigade, and 50 and 60 years old officers within his headquarters with experience which is much uh, bigger than his, and they are in large quantities, and they are coming with different aspects of not only military careers, but they are, some of them are you know, lawyers, engineers, scientists, and uh, that uh, fertilizes military thinking which uh, sometimes tend to be kind of, uh, you know, um, conservative. Uh, it, it fertilizes it in a, almost every echelon in, a, in the IDF, practically from the battalion level and, and above. Yes, sir. I think that is what I discovered is you got to have a deeper understanding and, it, and it's very, I think, very unique. And when we talk, like I even I study historical battles, you might hear, okay, reserve unit or reserve officer there's some you have to understand the idf system to really know what that means i think that's some great context now sir i know that urban warfare is what i do the idf has a long history of urban warfare but you know the question i kept asking is in the idf history are there urban battles urban situations like you mentioned sir your your time in the second lebanon war what in the idf history influences its approach to urban warfare today? Okay. You can basically divide the IDF history regarding uh, urban warfare into three, or, or two major periods and the inter-period. The first one is until the late 90s. Basically, urban warfare was not an issue, meaning that uh, warfare was during our... Uh, 1956 uh, Sinai War, 1967 uh, Six Days War, 1973 Yom Kippur War. It was in open terrain, tanks against tanks, and the infantry uh, was sometimes not keeping the pace with the tanks because we didn't have uh, enough APCs, armor personal carriers, and the infantry training were focused on uh, fortified positions and not fighting in urban terrain. Although we fought during Six Days War in, let's say, in Jerusalem, there was a battle in, in urban terrain. It was against army, against the Jordanian army, which was fighting from fortified positions within Jerusalem, and sometimes from the streets, but not from the houses. And the civilians were closed houses, or, or, or the area was evacuated. And the urban warfare of the idea was, was army against army. But still, although the experience in 67 and the traumatic experience in Suez, a ghost city on the western side of the Suez Canal, until the late 90s, urban warfare was a kind of a, a sideshow within IDF's military concept and perspective. And it was not a, a major issue. And as a result of it, you can see the, the organization of the army, the ratio between the tank brigades and infantry brigades was about two or two and a half to one. There was no specific equipment for fighting in urban terrain. So this is the first period. 
The second period is a kind of a transition and involved the, the fighting in Judea and Samaria. And it began in the late uh, 19s and the height of it was what is called the Second Intifada between 2000 and 2004. Then the IDF, uh, after Israel gave the Palestinian cities to the Palestinian Authority and then the peace talks and whatever, I, I won't get into details to her. No, uh, the, the situation that was the security situation was deteriorating after a series of suicide attacks. The IDF conquered again the Palestinian city. I was part of this uh, operation, uh, 2002 uh, defensive shield. Then it was a different fighting from the first period. It was against the PLO, a terrorist in our terminology, but you know, a small squads fighting within the population in urban terrain. The IDF uh, was operating his forces that were preparing for full-scale war with some adjustment. Like some of them were total improvisations, like putting a, a sand sack on the bottoms of uh, APCs in order to eliminate uh, the probability of IEDs or all kinds of you know, counter-sniper's uh, protection, etc. But still, although the, the fighting uh, in Judea and Samaria uh, cities, urban warfare was not regarded as a main war scenario because still it was fighting against the Syrian, the main war scenario, the biggest threat, still in 2002 and later was Syrian invasion in the Golan Heights and you know, never again suffered the tank crashes that we had there. And so still the force design and training was focused on the Syrian Golan Heights front. And even... I don't know, John, did you uh, visit the quite loud urban training installation in Selim base? Yes, sir. I've been there multiple times. So it's about, I believe it contains about around 3,000 rooms and up to eight-story buildings, and you can, you know, swallow a brigade or two. Yes, sir. Inside this infrastructure. But you should know that this infrastructure was created not because of what we know now about Lebanon and Gaza, but it was built in 2005 because of the, the IDF were preparing to fight again in Judea and Samaria in, in such scenarios, not because of 2006, it was created before. Now, the real transition happened after the uh, Second Lebanon War. Only, and maybe even later, after Cast led uh, the first operation in Gaza after Second Lebanon War, 2008-2009, the ITF totally, you know, switched his mind about the issue of urban warfare and understood the fighting the Hezbollah, which was partly in urban warfare or rural area in Lebanon, and fighting in, in refugee camps and fighting in kind of classic urban warfare in Gaza, only then the IDF understood that this is the main war scenario and switched not only the, from then, not only the training focus, but also made changes in its post design. And the changes began about a decade ago. And I think that when I, I'm looking on, on IDF military history, this is from the ground forces perspective, and maybe even from the Air Force, and maybe even for all the IDF, is the biggest change ever. Because when you deal with urban warfare, and I will give a, a list of changes made in the IDF, 
Now, you know, let's say from the perspective of intelligence, you know, in the days of open terrain, you know, locating from the air or binoculars, uh, enemy tanks was uh, one kind of, of a challenge, but locating uh, hidden Katyusha rockets or all kinds of rockets hidden in, in Hezbollah or, or Hamas buildings is totally different intelligence. And locating underground infrastructures is totally different kind of intelligence. And this is from an intelligence perspective. From the Air Force perspective, hitting uh, moving targets, uh, you know, like tanks, it's one kind of procedures, ammunition, and, uh, you know, everything that the, the Air Force is doing. And hitting, you know, the third floor out of eight in order to target only the, the enemy is and trying not to uh, bring down all the building or trying to hit, like in the, the last operation in Gaza, in uh, Guardian of the Wall, hitting the tunnel, it's totally different force employment and force design in order to do this. In the ground forces, if I mentioned uh, before that the ratio in the, let's say, until the, you know, in the 70s, Yom Kippur War, it was two or two and a half tank brigades to infantry brigades, now it's practically switched. It's a ratio of around two infantry brigades to one armor brigade. And this is one, you know, a huge change when you are dealing with, uh, you know, an army, you know, organization. And this is mainly because of the urban terrain. Infantry equipment within the battalion and, uh, you know, in all echelons from the brigade and below changed dramatically in order to fight in urban terrain. You know, as I mentioned in 67, the paratrooper reserve, paratrooper brigade that conquered the east side of Jerusalem, the old city, was a fully reserve brigade, didn't have any equipment that aided them to enter to break walls or to climb on, on buildings or anything like that. Today, they are within the IDF infantry battalion, you've got a huge variety of assets in order to counter booby traps, demolition in the street, to get to the windows, to the roof, to whatever, all kinds of robotics and all kinds of things that you throw into the house in order to see what's inside and small UEVs and so major changes within the infantry, not only size and ratio, but also with equipment. We are building more and more uh, urban terrain training infrastructure. We've got the, the tunnels issue, which uh, demands uh, more uh, capabilities from the infantry. The combat engineers changed dramatically regarding to all kinds of uh, tunnels and the uh, underground facilities that the Hezbollah and Hamas have been mass quantities beneath everywhere practically in South Lebanon and in, uh, in Gaza. So uh, those are, you know, various aspects of, of the dramatic change that the idea grew. Only after it decided that this is going to be the face of future war, fighting in urban terrain. Now, as I mentioned briefly, in 67, in Jerusalem, there was no population in the, in the fighting ground. It was army against army. In Suez, it was a ghost city, army fighting another army. And as you know, now the fighting is within massively populated areas in Gaza and in Lebanon. And that's another array of, of, of tactics, techniques, and all kinds of adjustment of weapon systems. 
small diameter bombs that their forces is employing and all kinds of very accurate munitions from the ground and from the air in order to pinpoint the enemy and trying to minimize the collateral damage and dealing with population within the battle zone. That's the head of um, concept and doctrine department after the Second Lebanon War. I, I was dealing with putting new staff officers from the battalion level and above, dealing with civilian population within the battle zone, all kinds of techniques, tactics, all kinds of uh, many issues that are dealing with how to separate between the enemy activity, you know, whether it's the Hamas and the Hezbollah and the population as much as we can. This is very problematic, as you know, because they don't differentiate between infrastructure. They are using civilian infrastructure as, as military infrastructure, and this, that creates huge challenges to the forces, and they are, you know, part of what I now described is aimed at in dealing with this scenario. It's multi-echelon and multi-service effort. The, the intelligence, the air force, the ground forces, Yes, sir. That's fascinating. It makes a lot of sense on the, especially the the likely combat zones, likely battlefield, a strong focus and changing to understand it will be not just urban terrain, but populated urban terrain. I'd like to go back to one comment you made, which I, I have seen about the ratio of the military from armor forces to infantry. Can you talk a little bit about the IDF approach to an urban, even if it's an offensive operation? on how they combine arms? Because I've had people tell me, and I, I know you won't agree with this, but that tank is less important in urban warfare. It's too vulnerable. This is an infantry fight. From what I've seen from the IDF approach with the combination of the armored engineer forces, the armor forces, the armored personnel carriers, and the infantry that you do need, of course, you guys have a very strong combined arms approach to preparing for urban missions. Would that be a true statement? And how do you guys organize for, even if it's a historical, recent historical battle, understanding the complexity of a populated urban terrain with all its challenges, the risk to forces, but also protecting civilians? So first, you're, you're totally true. I, the Israeli way of war, let's call it, you know, every nation got its own strategic culture and military culture. And our kind of philosophy is, that fighting in urban terrain is based on heavy mechanized components, meaning that you won't find any commander within the IDF infantry that will tell you that he's entering an urban terrain without tanks. Nobody will, will, will do that and, and say that. This is totally not understanding what is the meaning of uh, heavy fighting in urban terrain. So the, the Israeli uh, way of war in urban terrain combines as lower echelons as we can, a combination of, it's not mechanized infantry, it's regular infantry using the very heavy Namer APC with the Merkava 4 tanks, with the Puma APCs of the combat engineers with all assets on this APC and D9 dozers and everything that is defended and can carry as much as fighting ability and ammunition and supplies that you can. This is the Israeli way of fighting in urban terrain. It's not a place, not Gaza, not Lebanon, are a place for light infantry. They will slaughter the, in, in a minute. You can fight without tanks and the heavy APCs and the dozers and 
it may, you know, you may say, I don't know, maybe on the tactical level it may slow you, I don't know, but on the operational level it's the fastest and the best way to do it. And practically what you can see in the last decade is that the IDF pushes ability lower and lower as it can because, as you know, fighting in a room is a squad, squad level fighting. Fighting in a three-story house is platoon level fighting or in a bigger house is a company level fighting. And you want to push as many capabilities as you can down to the forces. So basically, when you enter Gaza, it's company-level combined arms team with, let's say, a few, you know, a company on Namer, APC, two or three tanks, two or three dozers, a D9, two combat engineers, platoon with two vehicles. This is the organization, tanks, dogs, maybe a squad of special combat engineers, a unit that can deal with tunnels. So practically what we are doing in the IDF through training is trying to train the forces in combined, in kind of heavy combined arms warfare in urban terrain. And that, I must say, also creates some challenges regarding how many assets at platoon level and company level can successfully operate. But bringing the numbers with you enable you to use the Namer also as a moving storehouse of capabilities. If you, you know, count only the soldiers back, it's very limited amount of ammunition and assets that can bring into the battlefield. It, on the Namer, you can put almost everything. You can get fresh, quite fresh, into the urban terrain, protected with the APC and with the tank. And then, you know, soldiers are getting out of the Namer at the outskirts of, of the urban terrain, they are not tired, and they always can get back to the Namer to get other assets that, that they are needed, or get supplies, etc. To sum up, for, from, from this perspective, again, in the last decade, there was a major change, and also, of course, in combined arms. And again, to your first question, uh, understanding of uh, what the IDF thinks about the urban warfare, y- yes. Tanks are, uh, are needed in different organizations, maybe. You are not going to operate a full battalion, of course, in urban terrain like in the old days in Sinai, but you'll find a lot of tanks in every street and every corner in urban terrain in the close relations with, the, with everything. Yes, sir, absolutely. There's so many points in what you just said that I have discovered in my own research and that are so important, especially... If you send a light infantry force alone into a non-permissive urban fight, you're crazy. You're going to lose a lot of soldiers learning the hard way that you need mobile protected firepower. You need engineer assets. You need a lot of capabilities. And I really, really feel the change of either this is combined arms all the way down to the company level and the quick force structure packages you talked about, I have seen. And I think they're what is required. And I think why I always see it in the IDF is because in my own assessment is that the IDF knows it's not going to go into a semi-permissive environment. It is usually always going to be a non-permissive environment, high intensity, and you need these force packages. And I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the D9. Had the honor of seeing one, watching it on my last visit. I think a lot of people could learn a lot about that capability. Also, the, the high logistical burden, if you're going to send an element into urban terrain, 
it requires additional logistical requirements protected that you don't have in other types of terrain. And hopefully listeners understand that urban fight is not a light infantry fight and it's not a strictly an armor fight. It's a combined arms fight. And that's literally the histories of all of our urban warfare fights, especially the high intensity ones where the risk is losing soldiers, collateral damage, everything. The way to do this right is with combined arms all the way down at the lowest level. I really appreciate that, sir. So my only additional question is really the use of fires. I think the IDF have some important lessons that they've learned, like you said, in protecting civilians and the different types of fires that an IDF ground force might employ in urban terrain because they know they're not going to just prep and target and just level because it's, it's with an assumption that this is always going to be populated urban terrain. Well, there are different types of fires that the IDF has used in com- combination with their combined arms maneuver forces. Yes, there are. But I, I begin with describing how we, it's not preparing for the fight, but how we organize our knowledge on the urban area before we enter it. And that relates to the Israel pre-knowledge where we are going to fight. We, we know that we are going to fight the Gaza, like your army that can find itself you know, in, in many places around the world, in the American army, I, I mean. The, the IDF knows where it's going to fight. So from the 80s, I think, when you enter the urban terrain, you have a map based on uh, air photography where all the relevant infrastructure within the urban terrain were marked from, you know, schools, the clinics, the hospitals, the mosques, everything was marked. It was, of course, for kind of common language between the forces, and you could uh, talk with the, the infantry, with the armor, and the attack helicopter, etc., about, you know, building number this and this, but it also, the marks were also in order to warn you what are, I don't know if it is the right terminology, there were kind of sensitive sites on your map that shows you where you are not allowed to shoot or not shoot nearby, like hospitals, clinics, etc., etc. And this is from the 80s. Today, of course, in the last decade, it's on the battle management system. When you're looking on something with your, you know, with your tank or from the air, precision munition asset is beginning to, the process of targeting a building in urban terrain, you see immediately what kind of uh, building it is. And that's the first step of trying to avoid uh, hitting civilians. And the rules of engagement in the IDF are quite strict, meaning that if it's a mosque, if it's a clinic, you are not allowed to shoot at it or operate fire unless somebody is shooting at you from this specific place. So this is kind of how you organize the area for using fire. So this is the organization of the area in order to differentiate as much as you can between the enemy fighters and civilian infrastructure with all kinds of assets that civilian assets that you don't want to hit. So this is first issue. Second issue is that our intelligence branch got amazing assets that enable you during fighting to get information about where the enemy is within the urban terrain. And that, of course, focuses your fires on the enemy. Beginning with knowledge about where are the enemy you know, hiding his rockets, uh, where is his headquarters. And as you know from the last operation in Gaza, we know where is the enemy tunnels, lines of tunnels. So this information you get prior to the use of fire and during your fighting. And this is the second part of focusing your fire on enemy assets. 
And the third one, it's the fire itself. And the IDF went through a process of being more precise during the years. You know, it, it's from the air, it, it's well known, you know, all kinds of assets, some of them from fixed uh, wing uh, aircraft, more and more accurate. It's, uh, you know, most of them are uh, American bombs with some of them with Israeli kits that make them kind of more precise. And we've got a range of, you know, from small diameter bombs to the biggest one. But we've got many assets uh, that are ground to ground precision munitions later on. So we had from the late 80s, we already had guided munitions from the ground, belonging to the ground forces. And later on, we, we developed a wide array of accurate munitions. Again, that belong to the division level and below. And in the last years, the IDF is producing mortars, precision mortar shells. And we've got very good capability to close the fire circles in a very, very fast way through quite known capability to close fire circles between all kinds of assets from all kinds of divisions and many kinds of fire assets. And the IDF ground forces headquarters from the battalion and above and in a limited way platoon and above can close fire circles in dozens of seconds. I hope I answered your question. It's a combination of preparation of the battlefield intelligence and fire assets and headquarters with the ability to do it and take decisions and clear the area from civilians and I just add another issue. I believe you heard the name knock on the roof. Yes sir, roof knockers. Yeah, roof knockers, yes. This is another kind of Israel improvisation. In Gaza sometimes we have the, the cell phones of the civilians who live in, in the building and sometimes it begins before the roof knockers Sometimes you just call them, and we did it many times, and tell them that we are going to bomb the house, so please go out and stay aside. If this doesn't work, we you know, shoot something very small that makes basically a noise to say that we are serious. We've got a procedure to clear the area from civilians. So we've got all kinds of procedures, measures. It's a huge challenge because we are trying to do our best. Yes, sir. No, I, I really appreciate that. And it really highlights for us studying herb warfare in general, the, the intelligence requirements to do an operation. And I think you highlighted those. And I do think that Israel has spent decades working on precision guided munitions at echelon to increase its lethality, but also its precision from smart bullets to smart bombs. So I, I can't thank you enough for your time today. This is a, a fascinating conversation. I think a lot of people will be interested in the IDF approach to urban warfare. Thank you, sir. Uh, thank you for hosting me and goodbye. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.